Good day, my friends, and welcome to another moment, a Black History Moment with Bo. And on this day, my friends, I hope you find laughter. I hope you just laugh until your sides ache. Because in this world, it is something that we all need every once in a while. It's a way of letting our souls know that we are still here. And still enjoying the fruits of its being. You know, my friends, I was so surprised of the young people that do not even know what the Civil Rights Bill is all about, have no idea of what made it possible for them to attend those schools, what made it possible for them to drink out of a drinking fountain or to take a front seat on a bus home. So today, as we slip into darkness, we're going to pull up on the archives of the Civil Rights Bill of 1964. And I hope you ask your children and grandchildren, do they know what it is? Do they know what it represents? And let them know that progress is impossible without change. And those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. There were eight steps that formed the foundation for the Civil Rights Act. So let's slip into darkness and find out what those eight steps were. The Civil Rights Act of 1964 was a landmark legislation that required decades of actions and setbacks to achieve. It prohibits discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. When it was signed into law by President Lyndon B. Johnson on July 2, 1964, it was a major victory for the civil rights movement in its battle against unjust Jim Crow laws that marginalized African Americans. And it took years of activism, courage, and the leadership of civil rights icons from Martin Luther King Jr. to the Little Rock Nine to bring the Civil Rights Act of 1964 into being. Now, some of these key steps you have heard me speak of before, but they ultimately led to the Act's adoption. Number one of these key steps was Brown versus the Board of Education. And the 1954 Supreme Court decision in Brown versus the Board of Education declared that segregating children in public school was unconstitutional, setting a critical precedent that separate but equal facilities were not equal in the eyes of the law. It provided a constitutional framework from which the Civil Rights Act could grow. But in reality, however, segregation was far from over. 
The South was stonewalling, and the federal government was ambivalent about enforcement. Number two was the Montgomery Bus Boycott. The story of the Civil Rights Act is not the story of how a bill became law, but the story of the power of broad-based activism to change the mind of the public. Now, the Montgomery boycott lasted over a year, from December 5, 1955 to December 20, 1956. It was sparked by the arrest of Rosa Parks, a black woman who refused to give up her seat on a public bus to a white man. To work, it required everyone's participation in the black community. It was not just a boycott but coordinating carpools, daycare, meals. It showed white Americans that the civil rights movement wasn't limited to fringe activists, but had the widespread sustained support of the black community. The boycott led to the Supreme Court ordering the desegregation of buses and brought a new civil rights leader into the national spotlight, Martin Luther King Jr. Number three was the Greensboro City-in, and it began at a Woolworth counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, when young black men known as the Greensboro Four continued to occupy their seats after being refused service. Their peaceful act of resistance quickly spread across the country. All of the places that are segregated became fair game. Students were having read-ins in segregated libraries, swim-ins in segregated pools, prayer-ins in segregated churches. National corporations suddenly need to account for why they're giving into segregation in their southern chains. It expands the range of the theater where action can unfurl. Number four was the Little Rock Nine. Now, the Little Rock Nine was a group of black students sent to integrate the all-white Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, in September 1957. Their enrollment was a test of the 1954 Browns versus Board of Education. Arkansas Governor Orville Faubus called in the Arkansas National Guard to prevent the students from entering. It would take federal troops sent in by President Dwight D. Eisenhower to safely escort the Little Rock Nine into the classroom. The governor's military intervention and footage of protesters spitting on the students provoked nationwide outrage that increased public support for civil rights. Number five was the Freedom Riders. In 1961, Freedom Riders, a group of black and white protesters organized by the Congress of Racial Equality, CORE, attempted to use 
whites only restroom, lunch counters, and waiting rooms, testing the 1960 Supreme Court decision in Boyton versus Virginia that ruled segregation on interstate transportation facilities unconstitutional. This is where you start to see more sustainable involvement of the federal government. Sit-ins are a state matter, a city matter. Activists in 61 are explicit. The object is to create constitutional confrontation to enforce the hand of the federal government. The Freedom Riders are covered under federal law. They're not breaking a law, yet they're being arrested, harassed, and beaten on national television while the federal government is dwindling. It's a moment that implicates Washington and asks, what are you going to do? As we try to climb the ladder to equality, number six on our list was the March on Washington. The march was for jobs and freedom on August 28, 1963. 250,000 protesters gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. in the wake of high-profile protests in Birmingham, Alabama and Jackson, Mississippi. What King did through 1963 was create the context in which the bill could happen. The Birmingham protests showed the strength of nonviolence by getting in the face of police and the white business community and in front of cameras. King understood very well the need to show the brutality of the system to the entire world. People saw children shoved into police vans, the horrors of dogs set on protesters, Medgar Evers' assassination in Jackson. It forced people nationwide to stop looking away. President John F. Kennedy charged his brother, Senator Robert E. Kennedy, with coordinating with the organizers of the March on Washington. Philip Randolph, founder of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, and Bayard Ruskin and king of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Famous performers like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan accompanied speakers like Walter Ruther, head of the United Auto Workers and the leading voice of labor, John Lewis and King himself, who gave his famous I Have a Dream speech that day. It was a demonstration of moral strength by a huge number of people and a wide range of liberal leaders. It marked an apogee of broad public support for the bill when it needed it the most, giving it momentum as it moved through Congress. Number seven on our list, the Freedom Summer of 1964. The Freedom Summer of 1964 was a voter registration drive for black voters across Mississippi who faced harassment and intimidation at the polls. 
The vote was absolutely essential to the passage of any legislation and to any politicians taking notice of the needs of black people in the South at the federal or local level. You don't get the Civil Rights Act without the Kennedy administration understanding black Southerners are a powerful source of votes. The SNCC joined with CORE and the local Council of Federated Organizations to bring over 400 white volunteers. It was an unprecedented amount of cooperation between young people and established activists. The SNCC was the only youth-founded organization within the National Civil Rights Movement. They were considered the vanguard going into rural areas where it was dangerous to organize, where other civil rights organizations weren't going. And now the danger was real. Beatings, false arrests, and the shocking murders of local organizer James Cheney, volunteer Andrew Goodman, and core project director Michael Schwerner at the hands of the Ku Klux Klan brought a nationwide attention to the extreme obstacles black voters faced when registering to vote. The Freedom Summer of 1964 paved the way for both the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And last but not least, my friends, is number eight, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. In June 1963, President Kennedy introduced a civil rights bill and went on national television to say that the United States will not be fully free until all of its citizens are free. When he was assassinated on November the 22nd, 1963, his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, took up the cause. It took the assassination of Kennedy, and Johnson wrapped himself in the mantle of Kennedy, claiming this is Kennedy's legacy to force through the Civil Rights Act in the Senate. Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into law on July 2, 1964, bringing King's dream and the dreams of thousands of activists and allies one step closer to reality. So there you have it, my friends. The eight steps that it took to bring the Civil Rights Act into reality. It took beatings. It took harassment. It took time spent in jail. It took loss of lives. It took loss of jobs. But we hung together. We stayed together. We wrapped our wounds and we got up on our feet. This is what the black baby boomers gave to our people some 60 plus years ago. So why can't the generation that followed us continue this fight? Because equality is still not here. Why can't it be seen that the baby boomer generations 
had done the marching, had done the protesting in the sit-ins. Why can't they see now to cut off the head of this snake? We must cut off our dollars. And when we do that, we will get what we want. Oh, it's going to be just as tough as the harassments and beatings. But in the end, it will be well worth it. Until next time, it has been my honor.